all like sheep, all we are like sheep, and we have all gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused our iniquities to fall on him, right? He has, he has saved us from our iniquities. We're here this morning to sing that, but not only sing that, but to hear that from God's word and to, uh, to, to let that motivate us and enable us as God's men. Last night, we looked at uh, God's design for men in just really a quick snapshot. That's what it is. It was not a, a full-on theological treatment from the Apostle Paul, but Paul is, is saying in passing, but really as a central aim of what he's trying to address in the book of Titus, and you can go ahead and turn to Titus chapter 2, that as there are attacks on the church, as the church uh, lives in a, in, a, in a world, in a culture that demeans the gospel and, and seeks to do everything to attack the gospel, what is needed is, and what are needed are gospel men. Older men who will be godly men. Younger men who will be godly men. And God is not calling you to be something that you cannot be according to His grace. And that's what we want to see this morning, that it is the gospel of grace that that motivates and enables us in in all of this. Um, That's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to dip into two passages, one here in Titus 2, and then we're going to look at Titus 3 as well. If you think about it uh, maybe this way, there are numerous things in life that... Um, appear to be impossible, <clears throat> like the Chicago Cubs ever winning the World Series, right? That appeared to be impossible, but it wasn't, right? It, it was possible. It took a while. Uh, when I think of things that are nearly or appearing to be impossible, uh, I think of baseball. In baseball, a hitter in the major league level has about 125 milliseconds to gauge the average speed of a fastball. That is less than the blink of an eye. Physically, physically, it should be impossible because of the rounded nature of the ball and the rounded nature of the bat and the need for lightning fast reflexes. And yet, as we just saw, players are able to hit the ball and hit it with great skill. Uh, they're, they're able to learn how to do that. They're able to train not only their eyesight, but their muscle memory and all those kind of things. So what is seemingly and physically, as it pertains to even physics, seemingly impossible, it's not. Uh, similar things are true of tennis. It's common for tennis pros at the highest level to serve a ball well over 100 miles an hour. At this last year's Davis Cup, John Eisner or Isner served the ball 157 miles per hour. That's not the fastest. The fastest, uh, I think it was back in 2012, it was the Australian Sam Groth who served the ball 163.7 miles per hour. I guess that .7 is important. 163 mile an hour tennis ball coming at you with fierce vengeance. I didn't read, but I don't know. I don't think it was returned. (laughs) That would be interesting. That would be impossible. Some things seem impossible, yet what we're saying, they can still be achieved with enough practice and skill. But even more impossible than hitting a fastball or hitting a serve or returning a serve is seeking to measure your spiritual health apart from God's grace. That is impossible. If you're trying to to measure up, if you're trying to um, just muster up godliness, or muster up what we talked about last night, or if Paul said what he says in Titus 2 about older men and younger men, if he said that in a vacuum, apart from the gospel of God's grace, then it's impossible. For Paul, the apostle, all of this is not about achieving a particular moral standard, Uh, It's about living out who we really are in Christ. This is who you are. Now you're enabled to live this way. 
And the real you, the real you, not, not who you feel you might be on a particular day. We, we have a tendency to do that. We measure ourselves by our strongest days and our weakest days, and that's not really the real you, right? As a believer, the real you is the one that is united to Christ and standing in His grace by faith. That's the real you. That's the real me. It's not us at our greatest weakness or even at our greatest strength. It's the real you is who we are, united to Christ, standing in faith. That's, that's the real me and the real you for the believer. The church that Paul is addressing here is being assaulted with a false gospel. We, we saw some of that last night in chapter 1. And that false gospel, as all false gospels do, it, it looks to external man-made rules, and the result of that is that it kills the church. Paul even tells us some of the results. In chapter 1, he says, this false gospel is upsetting whole families. So what must the church do to recover? Well, chapter 1, we said it's establishing healthy spiritual leadership. Chapter 2, it's establishing biblical manhood and womanhood. But we also see, as we see in chapter 2 and 3, it's also establishing a really clear understanding of the gospel. And that clear understanding of the gospel should result and does result in the fruit of the gospel or the fruits of the gospel. Uh, So what must the church do to recover this morning? So what we want to see is the gospel of grace that enables and motivates us to be what God has called us to be as biblical men, as godly men. Uh, really what we have here is the gospel in two movements. It is the gospel that enables us. It is the gospel that motivates us. Both of these are very important. And we're going to see one in chapter 2 and we're going to see another in chapter 3. And the, the first, if you're taking notes, is enabling grace. Enabling grace. How the gospel establishes biblical manhood. This is not, when we talk about biblical manhood, there's a lot of bad ideas about that. There's a lot of ideas about it's just getting out in nature, getting out in creation and sticking out your chest and doing wild things and camping out and going fishing and all those kind of things. I mean, and I love to do all of that. It's watching football with the guys. It's hanging out with the bros in the man cave. It's, I, I like to do all of those things. But, but let's not confuse those things with what real gospel-oriented men are and what they are to be. So the gospel in two movements, number one, enabling grace, how the gospel establishes biblical manhood. We are not established as men when we just get out in the woods. We're established by God's grace and it enables us. In, in verses, we're in chapter 10, or chapter 2, uh, it, there's no chapter 10 if you're looking for that. Um, in chapter 2, in verses 1 through 10, Paul has uh, shown us, and we looked, we dipped into that last night some. In verses 1 through 10, Paul leads us to see the practical nature of life in the body of Christ. It's a culture of discipleship relationships, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, workers, slaves, all of that. All of this stands in contrast to the false gospel of the teachers, the false teachers in chapter 1. You remember verse chapter 1, verse 16, they profess to know God. Now, they're, they're not coming and saying, we don't know God, you know, we're false teachers. They come saying, we know God. They profess to know God. But what is what reveals their false gospel? By their deeds, they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. If you were to circle that word deed in your mind or in your Bibles, you will see that that is a significant theme all throughout the book of Titus. Good works, good deeds. And they are known for their false deeds, their false works. That comes out of a false heart that is motivated by a false gospel. 
Now, what is it that enables deep relational change and spiritual growth in the church? Some of what we talked about last night, you might think, well, I don't have that, or, or I need that. What is it that enables deep relational change and spiritual growth in the church? Or another way to ask this, how is it possible to carry on as Paul has described there about older men and younger men? The commands of Titus 2 are outrageous unless we understand this. And the this is Paul's answer in verses 11 through 15. We must understand the nature of God's enabling grace. Let me give you some characteristics of this enabling grace so that we will understand this more. And then we're going to see how this motivates us. Uh, The first, the number one enabling grace and the first characteristic is this. It is finished. It's finished. This is not a grace that is, um, that is uh, re-sacrificed or sacrifice that is remade on an altar in a mass. This is not something that we can work up or do. Paul says in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, literally all human beings, all these types of people, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, all walks of life, it's appeared. And it is only the gospel of God's grace that enables a believer to walk in a manner that is pleasing to God and in love for others. If if you're trying to be a good guy, apart from God's grace, let me just go ahead and tell you, this is a spoiler, it won't work. It's impossible. Notice the conjunction there at the the beginning. For, at the beginning of verse 11. For, this is explanatory of what preceded this. So these prior verses, verses 1 through 10, Paul is now explaining, Paul is explaining further and giving more information about the relationships he has just described. And verses 11 through 14 is one long sentence. Paul loves long sentences. I've been preaching through Ephesians, and Ephesians chapter 1 has two long sentences. One of them is the second longest sentence in the whole New Testament, in the original language. 204 or 206 words, I believe. He just loves run-on sentences because he just gets going and he just says, oh, and another thing, and another thing. And he doesn't have periods, he just has commas, and he just keeps going. Verse 11 through 14 is like that. It's, all, it's just a, a long sentence about God's grace. And note the word grace stands as the subject in this long sentence. The word grace is a key term in our vocabulary of salvation. In fact, it might be the most significant term in our vocabulary of salvation. If you think about the, uh, the Christian life, if you had to summarize in one word, it, it might be this word, it's grace. What does that mean? uh, If we can state this negatively and then we'll come positively, God is not obligated to save us from our sins. That's not grace. He's not obligated to save us. He doesn't have to save us. We're not worthy of being saved from our sins. We we are at enmity with God. We are enemies of God. We we are God-haters apart from Christ. We go our own way. We love doing our own thing. We love pursuing our own pleasure. We love ourselves more than anything else and certainly more than God. Grace also means we cannot earn such favor or work enough to save ourselves from our sins. But what he is saying is God has made his grace known through the sending of his son, thus bringing salvation. And this grace, as we see here, it's indiscriminate. It has appeared and it is enough for all kinds of people, red, yellow, black, and white, older, younger, men, women, it is enough for all of us. There's not... 
a gospel for this group of people over here and another one for this group over there. There's not a, a gospel for our nation and another gospel for the other nations. If we cannot export what we believe, then it might be a false gospel. If what I mean by that is if what we preach in the United States and in our churches is, is not able to be preached in churches around the world, we might need to re re-examine some of the things that we are preaching. Because the real gospel of God's grace is transcultural, it's uh, trans-ethnic, it, it goes across uh, borders of nations and socioeconomic groups and all of those kind of things. We see it right here, old women, younger women, old men, younger men. And grace is the first thing on Paul's mind. It's the last thing on Paul's mind. If, if you were to book in this entire book, you can look back at chapter 1, verse 4. Grace, he says, is the first thing on his mind. The last thing, chapter 3, verse 15, grace. So grace bookends this entire, the entirety of this letter. And what Paul is stating here, no uncertain terms of verse 11, is that this grace is finished in that it has appeared in fullness of what Christ has done for us. Stated very plainly, there's nothing else to add here. There's not more to the story. There's not, here's God's grace. Now, guys, here's how you need to finish this out. It is finished. And that is some of the, probably the best words you will ever hear. It is finished. Jesus cried out, it is finished. The book of Hebrews, if we were to summarize the whole book, it is finished. It is finished. This is enabling grace. We are enabled to be God's men because His grace has been finished and it has been applied to our accounts by His grace for His glory. We also see another characteristic. It is sanctifying. It is sanctifying. Enabling grace is sanctifying. So it's not just, well, God has done this. Let go, let God, sick bat, just enjoy the ride. It, it, it's instructive grace. Grace teaches our hearts. It, it teaches us. If we really uh, lay hold of grace by faith, then it changes everything. This is not, shall we go on sinning because, hey, he's going to forgive us anyway. That's a paraphrase of what Paul says in Romans. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Absolutely not. The strongest words he can use. So what does grace teach us? Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. There are some in churches today, and we all have them, who recoil from any ethical demand that the gospel makes on their life. If... if a pastor or a brother in Christ says, hey, hey, brother, I, there's, there's something I want to help you with, and, and there's something that seems to be characteristic or maybe a pattern or maybe some sin that, you, uh, that seems to be enslaving, and a brother comes alongside of us and wants to help us. There are some in the church today who say, wait a minute, it, we're, we're, it's all grace. It's all grace. And they, they, they magnify grace, but it's not grace they're magnifying because the grace that Paul magnifies instructs us to deny ungodliness. And I have to ask them, what is it that they are magnifying? Maybe, maybe it's they love their sin still. Exhortations like what we find here are derided as moralistic or performance-centered, but, but that's not even a careful reading of what Paul says here. 
Bill Mount says, the fundamental teaching of this epistle is that the redemptive work of God in Christ must lead to changed lives. Must. He also says, this verse deals a death blow to any theology that separates salvation from the demands of obedience to the Lordship of Christ. I'll take Mouse's word for it. I'll take Paul's word for it here. It does deal a death blow. Paul sees no dichotomy between God's free, wonderful, sovereign grace that is not according to works and the demands that flow from that grace and what it instructs our hearts to do and to be. He says at the beginning of verse 12 that real gospel-changing grace teaches us, instructs us. Grace is an education in the lordship of Christ. Maybe that's something practically we can even ask of our own hearts, diagnostically, just saying... Is my heart on a trajectory in which we are seeing more and more our lives, our affections, our loves coming under the authority of God and His Word in Christ? Do I see that? And that's why we need what we looked at last night. We need godly men in our lives. We need mentors. We need pastors and leaders and spiritually minded people to help us. We see that in places like Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, that there are times where we get entangled and enslaved in our own sins. And Paul says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself lest you too be tempted. We need that in our lives. That is the iron sharpening iron. That is the, that is the mentorship. That is the spiritual care that belongs to the church. So what does grace teach us? Paul says denying ungodliness, worldly desires, living sensibly, righteously, godly. Biblical grace makes us intolerant of evil in our lives. Biblical grace makes us intolerant of evil in our lives. Grace teaches us to make no provision for the flesh. Not to get real close to the edge of it, but make no provision for it. Not to, it, it, it teaches us not to grow in worldliness, but to grow in Christ-like godliness. We, we do not magnify grace by getting comfy with the world and saying, oh, but God's grace, or t- taking the, the worst aspects of this world and trying to find some sliver of redemptive historical aspects within it. It's not enough, Paul says, just to eschew evil, but he says here it must be self-control with a righteous life, meaning our life is in line with what God calls us to be. This can be true of us even though, notice, because this might be a rebuttal that some might say, well, wait a minute, Paul doesn't understand the world in which we live. He doesn't understand the pressures I'm under at work, or he doesn't understand the wife that I have to live with, or he doesn't understand the, the pressure that I feel at school. This can be true of us. Paul answers that that rebuttal at the end of verse 12. He has taught us, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, godly. Where? In the present age. We're in the same age. Present age. A true countercultural revolutionary is one who lives for Christ in the dark age. You want to be radical for Christ? Go to church. Go to a church that loves Jesus. Go to a church that will open up God's word and apply it to your life and preach its once for all declared meaning. 
go to a church, be a part of a church where the leadership loves you and they will instruct you and they will help you and they will walk alongside of you in dark times and in times of great joy. They will weep with you. They will cry with you. They will laugh with you. You want to be countercultural, get out of bed and be faithful to your family. You want to be countercultural, be responsible. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Husbands, don't exasperate your children. Bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That is absolutely countercultural, isn't it? All of that is. What is it that enables that? It's God's grace. It's God's grace. There's nothing else that can explain that. The past work of God's salvation, Paul says, has appeared in the, in the past, and it's finished, and this is all you need for the present age. It's sanctifying. God's grace is wonderfully sanctifying. Uh, now, verse 12 looks at life as it is and how we live in the present, but verse 13 causes us to look forward as well. So enabling grace is, as we just said here, is sanctifying and then Letter C, another characteristic of this, it is hopeful. It's not only looking past to the past event of Christ's finished work, it's also hopeful. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now follow the time element here. Verse 11, past. Verse 12, present. Verse 13, future. Paul encompasses all of it here. What is this blessed hope? What is it? Paul tells us, in the, there's an explanatory phrase here that he uses, uh, believers live their lives in the expectation of our blessed hope, and then he explains what that is, which is the appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That is the hope. It is the appearing. It is the, the return of Christ. Paul reminded the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, that there are aspects of this uh, that, that are still that are future, but that future act, that future return, is a source of present encouragement and motivation. Eschatology is not something we just debate with people online. It is something that is to motivate us as godly men right now. Paul says in First Thessalonians five eleven. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. In light of what God's going to do in the future, encourage one another. This is not something to get wrapped around the axle on and just to get in debating and fencing matches with about biblical doctrine. This is something to encourage us, motivate us now. Uh, Peter does the same thing. I love Peter's reasoning. If God is going to destroy the world in this way, then what kind of people ought we to be? Thanks. Peter puts it on the bottom shelf for us, doesn't he? Paul's hope here in verse 13 is, is rooted unabashedly in the fact that God has revealed His saving arm in Jesus the Savior, and our confidence in this past work, as sure as you believe that Christ died for your sins 2,000 years ago, it is the ground of our confidence in His future work. How do we know He's going to come in the future? Because He came in the past. All of these are related. There's a line of redemptive history that is all woven together throughout Christ. It is hopeful. Enabling grace will be hopeful. So if we could turn this on his head, enabling grace and being a godly man is not being pessimistic. It's not woe is me. It's not the sky is falling. Without getting too far down the rabbit hole of this, we saw a lot of that in the last number of weeks and months, haven't we? People that think for a variety of reasons on all sides of political and social spectrums, the sky is falling. 
To be a godly man, again, if you want to be radical, if you want to be truly uh, a godly man in this generation, you'll be hopeful. You'll be pointing people to the fact that Christ is returning and to lay hold of his grace now by faith. Turn from your sins because Christ is coming back. It's hopeful. Uh, we also see another characteristic of this enabling grace. Letter D is it's substitutionary. It's substitutionary. Now, the only time uh, you might have remembered or heard of that word is when you were in school and you would not have your regular teacher, you would have a substitute teacher, right? There's more to that word, substitute, in the Bible when we think of it in, in biblical terms. Verse 14 here. There are some places in Scripture where the key answers are answered with brilliant unalloyed clarity. One question might go something like this. Why did Jesus save us? Here's one of those places where we have one of the clearest answers in all of Scripture in verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. You ever wonder why did God save us in Christ? Here's just a a sweet Short but loaded answer to this. You you can spend the rest of your life studying the foundation and the implications of verse 14. You will never exhaust, biblically speaking, the theology and the practical importance of verse 14, ever. We're reminded here by Paul that we need a substitute for our sin. We need someone to stand in our place because we are by nature... He says, lawless rebel sinners. The good news is that Christ gave himself for us. Perfect God-man, not, not, a, not a lawless sinner, not a lawless rebel. He was not fighting the system. He was not speaking truth to power. He was not a political revolutionary. He was a savior, a perfect man. He was God in the flesh, and he took our place, and he stood in our place in everything that that means. It also means he willingly, not begrudgingly, gave his life in place of ours. In fact, Paul will pick up that strand in Philippians uh, 2, and he will say that even that is an example to us of how we are to love others. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from vain conceit, but consider others as more important than yourselves. Have this attitude in yourselves. What kind of attitude? This one that was in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself, who didn't use his position, his, his, his high and lofty position and his authority for his own personal benefit, but he brought it to us and he laid it down for us so that we might know him. What did Jesus do according to verse 14? One, to redeem us from every lawless deed. Now this is vital to Paul's argument in this letter because you will remember that the false teachers are saying they're justified by keeping the law. They're justified by outward parameters and outward things, outward actions and deeds. But Paul says, actually, what these false teachers are trying to do and teach is the very reason why Jesus came in the first place. Paul says in Galatians, who bewitched you? Who, who, who's confusing you? They were trying to do the same thing in Galatians or a similar thing. Why did Jesus become a substitute to redeem us from every lawless deed? Every sin, everything that would go against the character and the holiness of God, Christ came for that. And he's taken all of our sins upon himself. Not only that, we also see in verse 14, to purify a people for himself. God saves us and marks us as his own possession. They are mine. 
Uh, This is the language that Paul will use in Ephesians 1, the language of adoption. He takes that which is cast off, that which is defiled, that which is dirty, that which is illegitimate, and he brings them into his own household. He says, these are mine. These are my sons. These are my daughters. He does that by adopting us in his son, Jesus Christ. Here, Paul adds to that whole concept and theological picture by saying he's not only just brought us into our into his own household but he's purifying this people for himself for his own possession the goal of god doing this is further explained at the end of verse 14 far from being the frozen chosen hey we're saved we're in god's household let's just wait until he returns sit around idle paul says god redeemed us so that we would be eager to pursue good works This is the total reversal now at this point. If you've been following the argument of Paul's letter here, this is the total reversal of the false teachers. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 16, you you remember what he says there. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, detestable, disobedient, worthless for any good deed. We've said said that a few times. The, The fruit of false teaching, the fruit of false living is a worthless product. Worthless detestable, disobedient. But the fruit of true grace, we see here in verse 14, it is a motivating anchor for a changed life. It's good news. It's hopeful. It's substitutionary. Uh, Let's look at one more characteristic of this enabling grace here. It It is to be proclaimed or is proclaimed. Verse 15, Paul, Paul looks, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you, Titus. Now there's a question to ask at this point. Does verse 15 introduce what is about to come in chapter 3? Or is it looking back to what we've already seen? While it is transitional in a, in a sense, and so it, it has arrows pointing in some ways softly in both directions, here Paul, I believe, is summarizing the teaching of chapter 2. One possible clue to that is, is how verse 15 is the other bookend to chapter 2, verse 1. Look back at verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Then he gives him the things in verses 1 through 14. And now in verse 15, these things now speak and exhort and reprove and so on. So Paul's had a little short summer, uh, sermon here on these things. And these things are... Biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, and and its implications rooted in the gospel. The temptation for Titus, the temptation for the church at Crete, the temptation for the church at Woodstock and the church at Huntsville, and for all of us will be to cave to external pressures and downplay what the Word of God so clearly says. For this reason, the Word of God, he says here in verse 15, must be taught, spoken with all authority. Now, I find this interesting. There, there's something that we haven't looked at here to, uh, in, in our sessions together, but something kind of interesting that you ought to ask questions. Why does Paul say that at certain times? So, for example, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul tells Titus, tells Titus, does, does Paul know Titus? Yes. Is he intimately acquainted with, with Titus? Yes. Is Titus intimately acquainted with Paul? Yes. They know each other very well. Paul's a mentor to Titus. But look at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul tells Titus that, <clears throat> Paul's saying about himself, Titus, I'm a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. Why does Paul say that to Titus? This would be like me calling my wife 
Her name's Julie. Say, hey, Julie, this is Paul, your husband. She would say, yes, I know. Why are you identifying yourself that way? It's kind of weird. Titus knows who Paul is. So why, why is Paul identifying himself to Titus, a friend and a pupil in the, in the grace of God? Why does he refer to himself this way? Because what Paul is saying in this letter is not only for Titus, but it's for the churches that follow and the, apost- the ap- apostolic teaching. And he will tell him in chapter 3 that Titus needs to speak confidently about this to all the churches. There, there's authority in this. The, this is not just a, a short little letter for, for Titus. This is, so Paul's identifying himself in such a way that when Titus preaches this, this comes with the apostolic authority. So these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. That's not just for Titus, that's for all of us who would profit from God's word. This teaching has a twofold function. He says in verse 15, it's, it's, to, be, it's ex, uh, to exhort and reprove. It's, it's to be exhortation and refutation. That, that is a, a hallmark of biblical teaching. Let me say it this way, negatively speaking. If one is all and not, the, and not both, or if it's all one and not the other, or both together, it's imbalanced. In other words, if a preaching ministry, a counseling ministry, a teaching ministry, a father's ministry in his home is one of all refutation and reproof, he's imbalanced. If a ministry is just all, let me tell you everything that's wrong, If a father is harsh with his children and just all refuting, don't do, don't, if your kids grow up thinking their first name is don't, there's a balance here. And it's also that balance can swing the other way too. There's some who are just always exhorting, but, but, oh, I just love people and I can never tell them that that's wrong. They'll, God, you know, God will help them, they'll figure it out. There needs to be both. And we need to hold those in careful gospel-centered balance. There's exhortation and refutation here. Exhortation is the idea of encouragement. And there must be a steady diet for us of patient, caring, and loving exhortation that comes alongside of those who are struggling with the implications of the gospel. Take the long view when it comes to our sons, when it comes to brothers in the faith, when it comes to those that we're seeking to disciple and help. Pastors and elders, that's hard for us. We need to take the long view with those in our ministry. And at the same time, there's the ministry of refutation as well. Paul also says that there is a place for rebuke. There is a place for that. Those who would seek to overturn the apostolic teaching, Paul says here, they must be opposed. They must be rebuked. This is the responsibility in places of of other portions of Scripture. Faithful elders, back in chapter 1, verse 9, they must be able to exhort and sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Exhortation, refutation. Those Those make up his teaching ministry, a balance of the two. Finally, Titus, he says here, let no one disregard you. Those who drink Titus from the fountain of the world's wisdom will only find bitterness when they taste the living water of Scripture. If you're just constantly drinking from the world and its teachings, when you come to Scripture, it's just going to seem repulsive unless, by God's grace, He has opened your heart and enabling you by His Spirit to say, this is God's Word. Lord, open my eyes and I may behold wonderful things from Your law. 
let's just to state the obvious. Rome will not approve of this gospel. The Cretan culture will not applaud this gospel. The false teachers affecting the church will not welcome this gospel. Any teaching that would remove faithful obedience from the scope of salvation is to be refuted by what Paul says here. The body of Christ, the church, must be faithful to magnify the grace of God even when everything else is pulling you in the other direction. The trajectory of salvation never stops with redemption, but it always moves. I hope you see this this morning. It always moves to sanctification and then one day glorification with Christ, our hope, our future hope. The gospel, brothers, this is good news. The gospel enables you to be what God has called you to be as a man of God. Let me give you number two here, and we'll finish with this. It's it's motivating grace. It not only enables us, it motivates us. And, and we want to see this morning, and we're going to look at chapter 3 now, verses 4 through 7, skipping ahead a little bit, how the gospel motivates biblical man, manhood. Probably you've seen that some already this morning in what we've said. So, so what changed our former estate and condition? What is it that brought us out of of worldly manhood into biblical manhood. What is it that affects that change? The answer is verses 4 through 7 of chapter 3. Again, this is one long sentence. I don't often suggest this, but I would make this suggestion. We all need at some level to really know or memorize chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. This is the meat and potatoes of the gospel right here. Would you just take this in? Maybe for some of you, I've been praying this. Maybe for some of you, this might be the first time to hear this with ears of obedience and to hear this to say, I need this. Would would you hear the word of the Lord this morning? Titus 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not from works that we have done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, though uh, or through the washing of regeneration. It's rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's just one sentence. And you know what, brothers? That's the most important sentence you'll ever read. Right there. If you make it your aim to always come back to this, you will never stray very far. Brothers and leaders, if we, if we point our sheep and our people and one another back to this, we will never stray very far. We, we forget this at times. We lose sight of this at times. Uh, the, the, the world, the flesh, the devil, they, they encroach on the, the wonderful life-giving truths of, of this sentence. This is the sum and substance of the atoning work of Jesus Christ for us. Notice also the saving work of the Trinity is upheld and cherished here. We are sought by our loving Heavenly Father who is chiefly characterized as our Savior who sends His Son to stand mercifully in our place and He saves us by giving us new life and changing us by the Holy Spirit. This is a, a Trinitarian sentence. This text is inherently Trinitarian. God the Father initiates salvation, verse 4. God the Son is the agent of salvation, verse 6. And it is the Holy Spirit who is the instrument of spiritual change, verse 5. So looking at these verses a little more closely, let's just ponder for a moment here 
what have we received with this question? What have we received by believing the good news of the gospel? As a man, what has, what has God given you by believing the good news of the gospel? And these are motivations for us to biblical manhood and faithfulness. Uh, number one or letter A, we have received love. We have received love, verse 4. But when the goodness and kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, God saves us because God is good and loves to do good. There are two descriptions of God's work here. His saving us is the appearing of His goodness. And also, it is the appearance of His loving kindness. That has a deep, we don't have time to go there, that has a deep theological background rooted in the Old Testament. God's chesed, God's loving kindness, God's steadfast, covenant love. This has appeared to us in salvation. Together these refer to the entire redemptive act of Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection. His goodness and His loving kindness appearing to us. This is the ministry of Christ summarized as the goodness and love of God appearing. The word used here for love is interesting. It, it gives us our, our English word traces it, its source back. Uh, the English word philanthropy. God is, but when we think about that, we think of some really wealthy guy because of tax purposes skimming a little bit off and giving it to us poor people, right? But, th- but that's not the idea here. Uh, God is not some wealthy deity skimming off the excesses of his riches and giving us what's left over. No, what he gives here in verse 4, his idea of uh, philanthropic uh, giving is he gives himself. He gives his son, verse 4. The word here means this loving kindness. It means a love for people. If we can put this on the bottom shelf of application here, you are most like God when you are motivated by the gospel to love people who are not lovable and maybe even reject what you offer. The essence of the gospel is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Christianity and leadership 101 is to love other people. In fact... um, if we, if we don't love people, John tells us in 1 John, we, we might need to examine our hearts to see if we even know God. Well, I'm just not a people person. I'm more of a, uh, an isolated kind of guy. I like to you know, just be by myself and read and study or play on the computer. God calls us away from ourselves to love other people. The essence of, of really solid, thorough, biblical ministry between men and the church is... Love for one another, laying down our lives for one another, serving one another, giving ourselves to one another. God has appeared in in this way. God has appeared. God, our Savior, has appeared. We saw in chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. Chapter 2, verse 13, the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God. And we see that his love has appeared as well. By his appearing and all that it contains, we have received love. Uh, also, another motivation is we have received mercy. If you've received mercy, we extend mercy. If you've received love, we extend love. Letter B, we have received mercy. Verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of works that we have done, but in, in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, through the washing of regeneration, that's rebirth, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 tells us what the appearing of God has done. What has it done? It has saved us. He saved us. 
The implication here is that we need saving. We're not okay. We can't save ourselves. We can't remove our own guilt and sin. You ever tried that? Men all around us are trying to assuage their guilt and their sin in a variety of inventive ways. We can't bring ourselves to God. Are you seeing people try to do that? Justify themselves before God? We can do none of those things. And so verse 5, he saved us. He has not saved us because we were deserving, but because he is merciful. Not from our works. Why, why is this? Couldn't God find, I mean, he's God, he knows everything, he sees everything. People reason this way. Couldn't God find something positive? Something redeemable, some good quality in us. My mom always said, if you can't say something nice, don't say it at all. Couldn't God find something nice, something redeemable in us? Remember what Paul said characterized us before salvation, back in verse 3. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. The answer is no. No, totally separated from God totally under the, the weight of God's wrath and our sin and enmity with God. He has saved us not because we are deserving, but because He is merciful, not from our works. Well, okay, of course we were, we were bad, but what about the, the good things we have done? I mean, because even a, a broken clock is right twice a day, Right? Paul says here in verse 5, not even the so-called works that we have done in righteousness. These had no effect whatsoever on God's show of mercy. So whatever we might even call good or throw into the category of good, even the, the good outward things, even those things, let's call them the temporary good things. They might even be good on a very earthly level. Even those things had no effect whatsoever on God's grace and mercy. In verse 4, the goodness and love of God motivates him to save. Here in verse 5, Paul adds the Lord's mercy. It's goodness and love, verse 4. Now it's mercy, verse 5. As we are wicked and foolish, we deserve wrath, but God shows mercy. This is compassion. And those who have, been ex- have had mercy extended to them and set upon them, we, we need to extend that to others as well. Point one another to the mercy and compassion of God. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Paul likes to talk about the the love and mercy of God lavished upon us. He has shown us why salvation has come. And now in verse 5, Paul describes how this conversion took place. We're almost done. So hang with me here. Notice here how conversion takes place in a sense. He says, and he shows us in, in verse 5, the Holy Spirit cleanses believers through being born again. The word here is regeneration. And in this, he forms us to be new creatures. So negatively, there is a, a cleansing and washing of the sinful nature. And positively, we are renewed by the Holy Spirit and given new life. That, that's a work of God that he applies to us by the work of the Spirit. The the washing and renewal here describe the same event. That event is conversion. This is one event, not two. So so we're not cleansed and washed uh, early on and then later on renewed by the Holy Spirit. This is one event here spoken of. The renewal here is referring to salvation, not an ongoing act of renewal or something that happens later on after conversion. 
This work of the Holy Spirit is a once and for all act of renewal whereby we are changed. We are given a new nature, placed in union with Christ, placed in the, the body of Christ. This is accomplished uh, an accomplished fact for the believer. We are adopted as sons, brought into his family. We have union with Christ. There's a great image in the, the early church father, theologian Chrysostom, he, who says... When a house is in a ruinous state, when a house is depleted and dilapidated, when a house is in a ruinous state, no one places props under it or makes an addition to the old building, but he pulls it all down to its foundation and rebuilds it anew. So in our case, God has not repaired us, but he has made us anew. Isn't that a great image? We do not need help we need to be torn down completely no good thing in me dwells god save me we have received letter c we have received a savior this is this is motivating grace as well we have received a savior verse six whom he poured out upon us abundantly who whom is the whom here who is whom the whom refers to the Holy Spirit, continuing from verse 5. The Holy Spirit has poured upon us abundantly. He's done this through the instrumental means of, of Jesus dying for us and being raised for us and ascending for us through Jesus Christ, who is chiefly characterized here as our Savior. What the Spirit brings to each believer is Jesus Christ, our Savior. If you want to know, in, in, a, in a world of charismatic confusion what is the the chief work of the holy spirit to the life of the believer it is this it is to pour out upon us abundantly the work of jesus christ to drive us to christ he is always pointing us to christ what the spirit brings to each believer is jesus christ as savior what makes the good news good is to understand to some degree the bad news that is implied here in verse 6. I need a Savior. I need a Savior. Lastly, letter D, we have received grace. This, this is motivating for us. We have received grace. We've said that many times already this morning. Verse 7, so that being justified, I love this, the, the emphasis in Paul's language here, so that, look at verse 7, so that being justified by His, literally, that one's grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In verse 5, we said we're not justified or righteous by our own works. So then the question is, how are we justified? By that one's grace, Jesus. In His mercy, He turns away what we deserve, wrath. And in, by His grace, He pours out on us what we don't deserve, mercy. There's a strong emphasis in this verse, in this text. Being justified by that one's grace. This is alien grace, alien righteousness, alien justification. It's not present within us. Let me say it this way. This is what Paul is describing here in verse 7. is not part of the gospel. Justification is the gospel. And the church stands or falls, according to what Paul says here in verse 7. This is the heart of the gospel message. And we're not accepted by God through anything that we do, but only by faith, which is grounded in God's grace in Christ. 
By the way, the responsibility to have faith in this finished work is in the next verse, verse 8. But, but here in verse 7, it is the, the courtroom language that refers to being acquitted of guilt. Not feelings of guilt, but real, the real liability of guilt. This is not, you know, sometimes we might think something and do something and we kind of feel guilty. The, the guilt that is removed here is real guilt. That is, we are already guilty before God in His court. But it is His grace that declares us free and justified before Him. Now, as we said, verses 4 through 7 is just one long sentence. Note carefully, the only time we, you say, where am I in this verse? The only time we are specifically mentioned in this sentence. You see it? Look look at verses 4 through 7. Just scan your eyes over those verses for a moment. The only time we are mentioned or referenced anywhere in here, it is to point out that our works avail us no standing before God. You see that? The only time you see your actions and my actions Our works mentioned is to note that they can't save us back in verse 5. God, another way of saying this positively, God is the subject of every action and we are the objects of his action. He is the subject, we are the recipients of his saving love. God is the object of all of this, we are the recipients of his grace and mercy and favor and love. And we see the aim at the end of verse 7, that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In short, this is the content of our hope is eternal life. Paul says in Galatians 3.29, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. In our home, we, uh, we, we like to read books together, and, and over the last couple of years, we've been reading through um, Andrew Peterson's Wingfeather Saga, a great book, I don't know if anybody has, or four books, We've been reading through those, and, and I won't give away any spoilers here, but after a central character struggles with being something that he is not, his brother reminds him, and he cries out and he says, you are the son of the king. Don't forget who you are. Brothers, older men, younger men, if you are standing in the grace of Christ, you are a son of the king. Don't forget who you are. Let this enable you and motivate you to be what God has called you to be. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.